You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. temple represents our altar which is the cross of Jesus Christ that is our altar that is where the greatest sacrifice ever was placed and bled and died that is what it looks like as you can see this it was on that altar on that cross that it began this is where it begins this is the place for us that it begins Isn't it amazing that Jesus got on a cross and was crucified for your sin? People in the Old Testament had to use animal sacrifices on an altar in order to cleanse themselves of sin. But you are free from this. Today, Pastor Dave will remind you that Jesus already paid the price for your sin. All you must do is believe. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 4 and 5. As he begins his message, get the picture. Second Chronicles, let's pray. Most gracious and heavenly Father, as we now come to your word, Lord, we know how important your word is to us. It's the very bread that we eat. It's our sustenance. It's, a, it's our daily portion. It's what gives us life through your word. So Lord, I pray, Father God, that our hearts would now be open to your word and our, our thoughts would be on you, that we would look to these scriptures today and we would get a true great, beautiful picture of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, that even though these things were written thousands of years before Jesus' birth, they point to him. They point to who he is and what he did and what he accomplished, Lord. So I pray for our hearts, Lord, that you would help us to glean from these scriptures those things that are important to you. What is important to you about these scriptures, Lord? Help us, Lord, to know the love that you have for us and help us, Lord, to know that this plan The plan of redemption through Jesus Christ was forged before the foundations of the world. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a second thought. It wasn't plan B. It was forged by you before the foundations of the world, Lord. And you made everything possible to show your children, the children of Israel, exactly what you were doing. Lord, thank you for allowing our eyes to be open to see these things. Thank you for your word as it is, Lord. Now I ask you would bless it. Help us, Lord, to... Move forward in this book as we continue these studies, Father God. May you be glorified in all that's said, done here. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first nine chapters of Second Chronicles basically deals with David's son Solomon, who became king after David's death. Remember, Solomon was the son of Bathsheba. And God had anointed him son, got him king. He had told David that he would be the king after David's death. And he also told David that Solomon would be the one who built 
the temple. Solomon would be one to take the temple into the next level and actually put mortar to stone and build this magnificent building, which we looked at in chapter 3. But it's interesting to me that as we go through the first nine chapters of Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and it's interesting the fact that it doesn't speak of Solomon's great achievements, his greater achievements. Solomon did much work as we studied in First Kings. He was a busy guy. He did all kinds of progressive things in the nation, and, and he did many, many different achievements. But the chronicler doesn't look at that. He doesn't look at the wisdom-filled decisions that Solomon's made. Remember the one about the baby that Solomon said, cut her in half and give one to each. Remember that decision that he made on that. Of course, they didn't do it because the mother relinquished. But these beautiful, they weren't recorded in Second Chronicles. Now, of the first nine chapters in Second Chronicles, the chronicler deals, the chronicler deals with the temple. He deals mainly with the building of the temple and the furnishings therein and the dedication of the temple. What does this tell us? It tells us just how important the temple was to the children of Israel. It tells us how important it was. Remember, they were coming back from captivity. 70 years in Babylon, they were coming back from captivity. They wanted to build this temple. They wanted to build it back. They knew it was there. They had heard it was there, but it was a daunting task. It was a huge task. How would they do it? Where would they get the plans? So the chronicler, in detail, describes what the temple looked like in Solomon's day. So that these coming back now have an idea of what is there. They have an idea of what this temple looked like. And so he puts it to pen and paper, and we see this. We read last week that the overall dimensions of the temple itself, the outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place. And we read about that. We saw about that. We talked about the two pillars standing strong in front of the temple, Boaz and Washin, the he shall establish and in him is strength. And these all point to God. We talked about that at length. And as we begin chapter 4, the chronicler now looks at the actual furnishings in the temple itself, the furnishings, the different things. What fascinated me, and as I studied this, as we studied 1 Kings, we also looked at this, but as we go through these chapters regarding the furnishings of the temple, including the Ark of the Covenant, we get a beautiful picture. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. So get the picture. I want you to see this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ in these furnishings in the temple and how God was showing them all along, how God was showing them. And Jesus Christ now becomes a fulfillment of these scriptures. Listen to what Matthew Henry says about this. I like Matthew Henry. I, I, read, his, I read his commentaries. He's pretty neat. Matthew Henry says this, quote, David often speaks with much affection both of the house of the Lord and the courts of our God in his psalms. Both without doors and within there was that which typified the grace of the gospel and shadowed out good things to come of which the substance is Christ. So all these things in the temple, and it leads me to believe that there was not one thing placed in the temple that didn't have a purpose, that didn't point to Jesus Christ. Remember now, these books were not written as you have them. 
They weren't written in chapters. They weren't written in verses. They weren't written. They were huge scrolls. And it was all one writing. Sometime later, they made them into chapters and verses, which is good for us so that we can look at that and we can get a better understanding of them. So he begins with the word moreover in verse four, chapter 4, verse 1. Moreover, he's basically continuing the thought from chapter 3. So moreover, he says, he, Solomon, made a bronze altar, or actually human, human, remember we'll talk about him in a minute. 20 cubits was its length, and 20 cubits its width, and 10 cubits its height. So he makes this cube, if you will, 30 by 15, this thing. It's a bronze altar. So when you walk into the temple, when you come into the temple, the first thing you see is this massive altar. This massive altar. And the Hebrew wording here basically says it's a killing place. Now remember what they did on the altar. On the altar is where they slaughtered all the animals. Where they just killed animals. And even when we get to the dedication of the temple, and even when we get in our scriptures today, it tells you that by the thousands and thousands and thousands, they killed these animals and burnt them to God. And we talked about Passover itself in Jerusalem. When, when they had Passover in Jerusalem, they would slaughter over 200,000 lambs. They would just slaughter them to worship their God. The altar was a place of sacrifice. It was the center of worship for the priest and for the people. They would bring their sacrifices there, and the priest would kill them. And if it was a sacrifice for sin, you had to bring your animal there, and you had to go up to the altar with it, and you had to put the animal there. It had to be a pure, spotless animal, and you had to be inspected by the priest. And as you went up there, you would put your hands on the animal. You would hold the animal. And what you were doing was you were taking your sin and transferring it to the animal. And the priest would cut its throat. The animal would die in your hands. And the blood would be sprinkled on your behalf. Would cover you for one year. But everything in the temple started with sacrifice. Everything in the temple started at the altar where the sacrifice was made. The sacrifice must come first. The altar in the temple represents our altar, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is our altar. That is where the greatest sacrifice ever was placed and bled and died. That is what it looks like. And you can see this. It was on that altar, on that cross, that it began. This is where it begins. This is the place for us that it begins. In Hebrews 13.10, there's a tradition that said the Jews were, were trying to get the Jewish Christians. They were calling them illegitimate because they didn't continue in the legalistic system. But the writer of Hebrews insisted that we do have an altar and this altar is for us who look to it. It's an altar to cling to. But those who are trusting in the law have no right to this altar. And that's what he's saying in Hebrews 13.10. That's what he's saying. They don't have a right to this altar. Those of us who come by faith have a right to this altar. Have a right to this altar. Our altar is the cross. 
The cross is the centerpiece of the Christian gospel. It's the centerpiece of our understanding. Turn for a minute to 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 24 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who would who believe. For the Jews request a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the cross is our altar. It's a place where it all began. And move over to chapter verses 1 through 5 in chapter 2. Paul says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So we see that Christ, the propitiation of our sin, appeased God. Settled God's wrath, settled our account with God on the altar, which is represented here in the temple. It's represented here. We have the altar. In verses 2 through 5, we come across this enormous tank of water. It's called a sea of bronze. This enormous tank of water. Then he made a sea of cast bronze, ten cubits, From one brim to the other, it was completely round. Its height was five cubits, and the line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. So in other words, it was 15 feet across, 7 foot 6 inches high, and 45 inches in circumference. Under it was the likeness of oxen encircling it all around, 10 to a cubit all the way around the sea. The oxen were cast in two rows when it was cast. It stood on 12 oxen, three looking north, three looking west, three looking south, and three looking east. The sea was set upon them, and all their back parts pointed inward. It was a handbreadth thick, and its brim was shaped like a brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 3,000 bass, which is thousands. 11,500 gallons of water. It's a massive, massive thing. Incredible. Why was it there? Well, sacrifices are bloody. Sacrifices are very, very bloody. It was a place where the priests came to wash themselves after the sacrifice. It was a place of cleansing. One commentator said that it was a representative of Christ being our purifier through the word of God. We are cleansed by the power of the word. We are washed by the water of the word. When we spend time in meditation and prayer, we are cleansed by that water of the word of God. We are cleansed. This large pool of water was set upon 12 oxen. 12 oxen, three pointing north, three pointing south, three pointing west, three pointing east. 
What does the number 12 represent? The tribes of Israel, it does represent the 12 tribes. What do they represent? Represent the 12 disciples too. What do both of them represent? Government. 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. They represent government. How many elders are around the throne? 24. 12 and 12. Government. It represents government. So you have this, this representative of the government here. It carried the water of life of God's word throughout the world. That's what the apostles did. They carried this water of life. It's a life-breathing thing. They carried it throughout the world to get the gospel there. Around it, coming off of this, there were ten lavers. These were bronze. These were little basins of water. These were basins of water. Look at verse 6. He also made ten lavers and put five on the right side and five on the left to wash in them. Such things as they offered for burnt offering, they would wash in them, but the sea was for the priest to wash in. They believed that there was some kind of a lip that the water poured out of the basin, out of the great big bronze of sea, sea of bronze, into these little basins. They would wash the animals. After they were sacrificed, they would clean the animals before they burnt them. They would have to clean them. Remember, they were looking for pristineness. They were looking for cleanness. They had to clean these. In verses 6 and 7, we see the candlesticks. We see the candlesticks. And he made ten lampstands of gold according to their design and set them in the temple, five on the right side and five on the left. He also made ten tables and placed them in the temple, five on the right side and five on the left. And he made 100 bowls of gold. 100 bowls of gold. Lampstands. Not here, it's over there. Lampstands, like the menorah over there. Lampstands, candles, to light the way. It was the only light in the room. It was the only light in the room. What do the candles represent? It's a Bible study. Christ, they represent Jesus. They, they represent Jesus. He's the light of the world, is he not? He's the light of the world. It also speaks of his presence. It also speaks of his presence. How do I know it speaks of his presence, you might ask? I'm asking you. How do I know? Because in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus says to the church of Ephesus, Remember therefore from where you had fallen, repent and do your first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus would come and remove the lampstand. He would remove the light. He would remove himself from their presence. So the lampstand represented Jesus. When the lampstand was removed, they could continue as an organization, but they would no longer be a true church of Jesus Christ. They would be like Israel when the glory of God departed. They would be the church of Ichabod. Remember in 1 Samuel 4, 21, they said Ichabod, the glory of the Lord had departed. On the table was Mark's favorite, the showbread. These loaves were symbolic, an acknowledgment that God was the resource for Israel's life, and the nourishment was also served as Israel's act of thanksgiving to God. They were new almost every day. They had to change the showbread regularly, and the showbread was there. The loaves represent Jesus Christ, John 6.35, the bread of life. He is the bread of life, so we have this bread there, the priests were allowed to eat of the bread. They were allowed to eat of the bread. 
In verse 9, it says, Furthermore, he made the court of the priest, the court, the great court, and the doors of the court, and he overlaid these doors with bronze. He had a court of the priest, which was also known as the inner court. And then there was the outer court. There were other courts also in there. There was the court of the Gentiles, which was way outside. And then there was the court of the women, which was off to one side and blocked off. They didn't mingle. They didn't come in contact with each other. Naturally, the Gentiles had to stay way outside. And the women couldn't mingle with the men. Turn to Ephesians 2. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Specifically looking at verses 14 through 18. Paul says, For he, Jesus, is our peace, who has made one both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinance, as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile both of them to the body through the cross, and by putting death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Right? Why did I tell you this? Because there is no wall division in Jesus Christ. We are all one. There is no Jew. There is no Greek. There is no male. There is no female. There is no synthesis. There is no anybody else. We are all one in Christ. He broken down those walls. In the temple, they had these walls of separation. And this is what Paul was talking about. They broke the walls of separation down. Jesus broke them down. The two men, the Jew and the Gentile, became one man in Jesus Christ by the cross. For a Jew to believe and get saved, he must or she must go to the cross of Jesus Christ, accept Jesus as the Messiah, and be saved and born again, just like we do. So this represents that. And you see that in there. And you see the intricacy here. The doors were made of bronze. It's interesting that bronze was always a symbol of what? Judgment, judgment, sin. Doors were made of bronze, which is always a symbol. But as they walked through, they entered into this beautiful, beautiful place. Who is the doorway to God? It's a Bible study. Jesus is the doorway. Remember I said get the picture? Everything is representative of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the door to the sheep gate. The sheep come in. They know him. They call him. Look at John 10. The only way we can enter into the presence of God is if our sin, our bronze, is judged. It must be judged on the cross through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I forgot one thing. Let me back up. The ten bowls, those bowls that were talked about, remember we talked about those ten bowls? I didn't say anything about them. A hundred bowls, a hundred bowls of gold. They held the blood. They held the blood that the priest would take into the most holy place and use it and sprinkle on the ark, on the mercy seat of the ark. That's where the blood he would take in, the blood of the animals he would take into that place and sprinkle on there. Those 10 things. You are You've been listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave. Pastor Dave has been working his way through the book of Second Chronicles. 
Before you assume that this book entails a bunch of details from the past that don't really affect you today, make sure you take some time to appreciate what this book offers. In addition to the history of the Israelite people, you get to know the rise and fall of many kings. They were all sinners who needed a savior. They were just like every person today, no matter their status, who needs a savior. Do you know this savior, Jesus? If you do, you've come to greatly value what this means in your life. If you're unfamiliar with the concept, we want to help you understand that. No one has it all figured out on their own. For sure, no one is capable of living without sin and error. But what you need to realize is that there's a sure hope through the Savior, Jesus Christ. His willingness to be traded for your sins makes all the difference. By knowing Him personally and believing in Him, you get to move forward with life, knowing you're not perfect, but that God's bringing you into something better. The ministry of a sure hope comes out of Calvary Chapel, Cape May. If you're in the area, we'd love to worship God together with you this weekend. Head over to assurehoperadio.com for service times and directions. Again, that's assurehoperadio.com. If you can't make it in person, we stream our services live to Facebook and YouTube. That's all we have for today, but we look forward to connecting with you again on the next edition of A Sure Hope. Oh